You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This book arose, like a phoenix, as an experiment in having it all. Could I fulfill my career potential and have a fulfilling family life? Could I be a great parent and still attend to my own needs? Could I be successful and happy without also feeling stressed and anxious? Having studied well-being and elite performance for the past decade, I've long known what to do to be both happy and successful. After all, I coach people from all over the world on these topics. But to be totally honest, in my day-to-day life, I used to struggle to walk the talk. Five years ago, I was a single mother holding down three demanding part-time jobs, and my life was a blur. Yes, our family did find a way to eat dinner together most nights, and we talked about what we were grateful for. In some ways, I practiced what I preached. But in other ways... I was caught up in the busyness of modern life, winded, running on a hamster wheel, afraid to slow down. I'd lost my groove. Christine Carter is a sociologist and a senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. She's the author of Raising Happiness and the Other Side of Silence. Her new book is The Sweet Spot, How to Find Your Groove at Home and at Work. Thank you for joining me, Christine. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Christine Back in your career, here you are, successful marketing executive. You decide to go look for happiness. <laughs> this is not something that got you a lot of accolades in the academic world, was it? Well, no, especially not back when I was getting my doctorate. There were not a lot of people, certainly in sociology, studying happiness. And happiness was not a term that was very well respected, right? I can remember professors saying to me, at least call it subjective well-being. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded sort of fluffy. But, you know, I had a long history as a very anxious, perfectionistic, overachieving individual. And I had little kids and I wanted to learn how to be happier to raise kids who weren't also anxious. You succeeded in doing that and in transforming yourself into a person who could give great advice to people on how to achieve what yet still somehow eluded you. And that was where this book begins, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I built this very fulfilling, very meaningful career that I absolutely love. And I had a family life that I really loved. And actually, I was quite happy. And had dramatically lowered my anxiety. So I I had gotten so far, right? I had mm-hmm. moved the needle quite a lot in 10 years. But I was sick all the time. I was totally exhausted and I was still I was still quite stressed a lot of the time. I you know, I had left some of the worrying behind, but I felt pre- rushed, pressed for time. Always like my to-do list was too long in a way that was really holding me back. And it wasn't until I realized that I had been, had, you know, chronic strep throat and these illnesses for so long. I caught every virus on every airplane I went on. I was, I just had a hard time staying healthy. And so I knew there was a real irony there, right, (laughs) that I could teach other people how to be happy 
or more productive, but that I and I, in fact, had it all, everything I'd ever been looking for, except for the thing that mattered the most, and that was my health. And you had what you called the the hospital fantasy. And I think this is so interesting, the paradox at the heart of the hospital fantasy. Yeah, I found myself, so I had a really bad kidney infection, and I was in the emergency room. And so it was a hospital fantasy that was potentially a reality, right? <laughs> and, I, and I remember they were giving me um, IV antibiotics, and I remember having this little hopeful thought that they would keep me in the hospital overnight so that I could just rest. And that was when I knew I was really in trouble. <laughs> I was wishing to be even sicker than I was <laughs> so that I could just check out for a little while. I knew that was that was rock bottom for me. And uh, it was a good thing that that happened. You know, uh- you talk about how we experience our emotions in these books. And, and this was a point where you were experiencing uh, an emotion that I think was really important to you. And I'd like you to talk about examining that emotion and where that led you and then maybe open out towards our, our emotions. What I realized that I had been doing was actually numbing a lot of my emotions, right? So I was staying so busy all the time that I wasn't really letting myself feel. I wasn't accepting the reality was that I was so tired, right? But I could keep myself so busy and so engaged in everything in my life that I wasn't letting myself really feel the exhaustion or the stress that was coming down on me. So that is really one of the first steps was for me and is for other people is to stop numbing out all of your emotions with busyness or, you know, some people eat the whole pan of brownies or we all have our ways of numbing what what it is we're really feeling. But when we slow down and let ourselves really feel what it is that we feel, a lot of times the more difficult emotions, the anxieties, the worries dissipate because they've been heard, right? And all the more, much more positive emotions rush in, right? So suddenly you can really feel profound gratitude or inspiration or awe. And those emotions become even more functional in your life. Now, you know, it's sort of interesting. It's It seems highly functional to be able to numb out the difficult emotions that you don't want to feel. But they never really go away. They know We know that physiologically they take a, a, a deeper toll on our physical health when they don't go away, when they're just suppressed. And we our numbing system is not selective. We can't just numb out anxiety, for example, or grief. Um, when we numb our emotions, we numb them all. And so, if when I say I was happy, I I didn't I wasn't experiencing the deep joy that I now experience. You came up with a, a formula, and I really like this formula. <laughs> I think it's it's helpful and I, I want you to just talk about as a writer and as a scientist and as uh, somebody who helps people yeah boiling this down to a formula. Talk about that process for you, how you did that um, it's It's interesting because the formula came after everything else. You know, so mm-hmm. it was more of a, in in hindsight, look at what I've done. There are these five different components to this. And I think f- for 
different individuals, certain components will be more important than others. So you might have to actually help me. The formula is, uh, is, is wonderful. It's take recess plus switch autopilot on plus unshackle yourself plus cultivate relationships plus tolerate some discomfort. And that gets you to the sweet spot. Yeah. So each of those, you want to talk about each piece of that, or do you sure, want to... yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit because you get us as a writer. What you do is get us right to the fun stuff first, and I think that's important. And that's something that's coming up more and more is the importance of fun in our lives. Oh, absolutely, and and the importance of fun in proportion to difficulty, right? So life is difficult. It is full of challenging emotions. It is full of discomfort. No matter how privileged you are, you cannot buy your way out of pain and suffering. It's just a part of how life is. But the interesting thing is that when difficulty comes, it's really important to not just balance it out, but to almost overbalance it with positive emotions. So, you know, you're talking about fun and play, I like people to sort of broaden that out. The things that make life worth living are positive emotions, right? So um, gratitude, happiness, contentment, engagement, optimism, faith, awe, inspiration, love, and compassion. When we have those positive emotions or a wide range of positive emotions in uh, a ratio to our negative emotions that is about three to one or, or greater, we tend to really flourish in a way that we can't otherwise, that there seems to be a tipping point for us, that when we're experiencing those kinds of positive emotions and play and laughter in, in balance with our, our difficulties or in a, in a ratio of three to one, we've, it's what researchers call flourishing, where we're more creative, we're more verbally fluent, we're more able to solve problems and innovate. You you talk about the, the work of Mia Lee, uh, Cheek sent me high. <laughs> you just call him Mike. I just call him Mike Cheek sent me high. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Him, let's call him Mike. <laughs> okay. So what Mike says essentially is it's kind of interesting to twist on the old Stephen King story, all work and no play may oh, kill you. Oh, it's so true, actually. Well, we know that the function of, all, of positive emotions is to put the brakes on that fight or flight or that stress system. And, and he did an interesting study that was never published in a peer-reviewed journal because he had to he had to stop it. He basically and this is in the late 70s. So before I imagine anyway before we were all so busy 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 all the time and he took his research subjects and he said and he's these are the the beginnings of his studies of flow. And so he kind of divided all of their daily activities into what he called instrumental and non-instrumental. So that would be all the stuff on a task list you don't really want to do and play or flow, right? He's trying to look at flow. And he said, well, what happens to people if we take all the play and all the flow or all the non-instrumental tasks out of their lives? And so the instructions, I think, are kind of funny. He said, from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., don't do anything that you don't absolutely have to do. 
right? So you you can you can only do your task list stuff. You can do, don't do anything that you don't have to do. I think I said it wrong the first time. So no play, no fl- flow, nothing just for enjoyment. But you know you can wash the dishes and drive the carpool and commute to work and do your job, just the unenjoyable stuff and all that kind of thing. After just forty eight hours. They had to stop the study because these poor people who weren't doing anything enjoyable, weren't having any flow, weren't having any play, were showing signs of generalized anxiety anxiety disorder. They were showing signs of generalized anxiety disorder. So they, their reactions varied, but they reported brain fog and jitters and sleeplessness or were having trouble staying awake. You know, people respond to anxiety differently. But it was so severe that they thought it was not ethical to continue. And so now, fast forward to 2015, right? From 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., I mean, a lot of people are working or checking their email or on their devices for that full 12 hours. And there's not a lot of play. Not a lot of people take recess. That's the first part of my formula is to take recess, right? To give your poor little brain a break so that and, – and reap the benefits of that play. You talk about circadian rhythms, but you brought up a really interesting topic of ultradian rhythms. Tell mm-hmm. us what they are and why they're so important and how that plays into this taking a break. Absolutely. So we're familiar with circadian rhythms are cycles in a 24-hour day, right, where our, our our animal bodies are keyed to the light. And these animal bodies that we have are also in um, – operate in ultradian rhythms, which are patterns throughout that 24-hour day. So your heart rate has an ultradian rhythm. Your breathing has an ultradian rhythm. And what I think is really interesting is your brain has ultradian rhythms as well. Different types of brain waves come in and out and patterns of thought and um, just basic brain activity. And that our, our brain has attentional systems which operate like a seesaw. And so when one is on, the other is off. And we, those ultradium rhythms cycle between what's called task positive and task negative types of activities. And so our brain is most powerful and most efficient when we work according to those ultradian rhythms, those brain wave patterns, those energy patterns, where, which would mean that we're focusing for maybe about 50 minutes and then we go take recess, right? We either, or we just stare out the window. We can go for a walk in nature. We can go play. And the reason that that makes our brain more powerful is not because it's like a battery that drains and then needs to recharge, although it definitely does. There is a little bit of that. It's not so much rest as it is a switch in that brain activity. So when we are focusing really hard, that's using one part of the brain. And the, ta- the task positive, the task negative part of the brain is off at that time. And when we go to recess or we stare out the window, so this is going right back to our school days, right? You didn't think that they, you thought schools were becoming more pro- progressive and not doing that as much. But I'm saying go back to that, stare into space a little bit or go play, go, at, uh, go connect with some friends. That task negative, quote unquote, attentional system is where we generate all our insights, so we think our brain is resting. We think we're not being productive. 
but our our neural networks are making connections that we didn't see before and those connections are where all our insights come from so if we have a job where we need to build a bridge or write a book or whatever it is that we're doing we need the insights that happen while we're at recess or while we're staring out the window and that then we can use that logical focusing brain to build the bridge or write the book. We have to realize that there's a lot going on under the hood <clears throat> when that engine's running that we're not aware of. There's a lot of pistons going, everything's happening, but you don't think about it. You're just driving the car. Exactly. You know, one of the things that interests me, too, is that you say we ignore these ultradian rhythms at our own peril. Yeah. And the result can be something like jet lag. And that yeah. explains just so much of modern life, why you can work all day and then just feel so tired by the time you get off, try to take a rest. You can't even rest anymore. No, because you're you're all you're so out of sync that your brain doesn't know what it's trying to do. You know, we also prop ourselves up with caffeine and and all the checking behaviors with our on our phones and our devices and everything can be very stimulating. It's like a slot machine. So uh, so our brains get a little wired. You know, it's tired and wired. And this is not our most powerful state. You know, the sweet spot, maybe we should back up and say, to me, the sweet spot is the overlap between what we find to be really easy, where where we have our least resistance, our least stress, and where we have our greatest power and greatest personal strengths. And that if we want to use our brain from that sweet spot where it's not using the most energy, it's not draining that ga gas tank or that battery really rapidly, and there's, there's not a lot of tension or stress, but still we get our greatest insights and have our greatest power, we need to pay attention to, to these ultradian rhythms, just like we do, we pay attention when we travel across time zones. You talked, too, about finding the minimum effective dose, the yeah. MED. I, I like this. I think this is a great way to approach our recess needs. Yeah. You know, I had to come up. So the minimum effective dose is what doctors give their patients, right? They don't want to give them too much medicine because they, it can become toxic. And I think that in the, in the United States anyway, we have this great myth that more is better, that, that if a little bit of something is good, then more would be better. And we approach levels of toxicity, right? So if anything in our life is like a medicine, right, we we take it to the toxic realm. And for me, you know, when I was so sick and just trying to figure all of this out, people kept saying to me, well, you're going to have to slow down. Well, you're going to have to give something up. Haven't you figured out that you can't have it all? And it, it was all this, everybody's notion was that, was something that evoked loss for me, mm -hmm. right? That I couldn't have it all. And everything in my life was so hard won. I'd worked so hard to be where I was with my family and my children and my work and my career. I didn't, I didn't want to step back from it. So this minimum effective dose was this slight paradigm shift, which it didn't trigger loss for me. It was this idea that if, if we scale things back to a more effective dose of something, that that 
then actually we can enjoy it more. So I did this with every area of my life. So I had had this assumption, for example, that more time with me would be better for my children. So there's the more is better thing. (laughs) And it would be better for them if I picked them up from school every day. And I was always the one to help them with their homework. And I was at every single game and every single performance. And we had dinner together every single night. And it, it was a totally unquestioned belief. I'd written a parenting book for crying out loud. I was I was a great presence for my children. And I'm not saying that parents should become uninvolved. I'm saying I realized that there was a minimum effective dose that, you know, now that they're in middle school and high school, I don't need to pick them up from school every day. In fact, they prefer it when the college student does it, <laughs> you know, and that I, you know, I could find a minimum effective dose for exercise. I have the most ridiculously easy re- exercise routine ever now and I find it incredibly enjoyable I I'm exercising a lot less on a daily basis right so I I exercise for approximately three minutes a day which sounds totally absurd but I'm doing 20 push-ups and 25 squats and a one minute plank and because I do that seven days a week without fail even when I'm traveling I'm ending I'm stronger than I was way stronger than I was when I was training for a half marathon, for example, which took a lot more time. (laughs) Just saying. You know, one of the things that interests me too is what you call the stress success tipping point. And so I'd like you to talk about creating psychologies of ease. Sure. So that's what I was starting to talk about a little bit earlier with the Mm -hmm. ratios of positive to negative emotions. And that tipping point when you get your positive emotions up, the number of positive emotions you have for every negative emotion up over for over three, right? Three to one in terms of a ratio, there seems to be a a real tipping point in which your nervous system starts to work more efficiently. It feels much more at ease. And this is just like, you know, a a relaxed muscle works better than a tense muscle, right? This mm-hmm. is more, it's both more powerful and it's more at ease. So these psychologies of ease are really around fostering these positive emotions, not just taking recess and going to play, but also consciously cultivating positive emotions in your life. So maybe you're particularly enjoy feeling inspired, having inspiring poetry around. That's really geeky. I've just revealed something about myself. You know, it also works to just have to bookmark funny animal videos if that's what it does it for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So having ways to cultivate these very real emotions in your life has a palpable effect on your brain function, your nervous system. And this changes the way that we operate in the world. Well, one of the things, too, as I read this book, I felt like this book is like kind of a computer programming manual for the human mind. It is. is. And and so you have lots of really nice steps. And so you have a whole section on deliberately inducing specific positive emotions. Yeah. And you give us a nice list. And those are things we can really grab onto. And so, for example, you tell us to deliberately practice gratitude. And And it's easy to do. And there's a lot of different approaches you can take. It's not just saying walking up and saying thank you to people. 
Oh, absolutely. Gratitude is one of those very well-researched positive emotions that if you can learn to consciously cultivate it, you know, gratitude is interesting because it arises naturally in humans under conditions of scarcity. So if you don't have enough to eat, you're going to feel very grateful for whatever foods put in front of you, right? It arises naturally, but we can also cultivate it consciously. And by thinking of things that we appreciate in our lives, right? It sounds it sounds really simple, and a lot of to a lot of people it's hokey. But we have more than ten years of really interesting research on how this affects your health, your happiness, this psychology of ease. And it's not any harder than counting your blessings in a way that feels authentic for you. And it interests me too that you say we have ten years of research because we've really entered a whole new realm of the science of happiness, where mm-hmm. it's not no longer just kind of feel-good, uh, happy-wappy stuff. There's some there's hard science b- behind this entire book. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things I think that sets it apart, or that is set our age apart, is that a lot of the technologies that are also undo us, <clears throat> they do in the lab, give us the ability to understand how to make ourselves better. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really think of these as technologies, right? Mm -hmm. These are technologies that help us get to that sweet spot, to technologies of ease, but also of mastery to, to increase our strength, that it's nothing in this book hasn't been empirically tested by researchers first. That was the that was the disconnect for me. I was really familiar with all this research. I had been studying it for more than a decade. But I hadn't totally figured out how to apply it all to my life in a way that sort of flowed. And that's what this book is, is here are all the technologies. I've road tested them all. But they're also this is not just what worked for me. All of these all of these strategies and tips come from psychology, mostly neuro, you know, neuroscience, a lot of sociology as well. And, well, you talk, too, you have, you quote uh, Barbara Fredrickson, who says that the world around us obeys natural laws. It's intuitive that human thought would follow pattern flow patterns just like water does. Yes. Yeah. And, That's that. She's talking about that tipping point, mm-hmm. that ratio of positive to negative emotions. Once it becomes uh, goes above three to one, it's like ice melting into water, right? We know that there is a tipping point in terms of temperature when ice melts into water. And that we also know that it, I mean, she thinks of it as a psychological fact Mm -hmm. that when we get our positive emotions up, that something changes in us. And, And I would argue, and I think she would too, that what changes in us is we're able to operate from that sweet spot. There is a very definite sweet spot in our lives, our brains and our work, and that when we're operating from that, we have much less resistance, no stress, and our greatest power. And I think you do a great job in this book of organizing uh, a whole bunch of different things in a way that we as readers can can grok. To, to, we can get it and understand it and internalize it and make use of it in our own life. Um, in the, amid the positive emotions you talk about, we've, you've talked about finding inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really great because, you know, when we see something, I think for me, inspiration is this idea of you see something, you think, you know, I could almost do something like that. Maybe yes. I should try it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
yesterday we saw Selma, and I, I took my teenage daughter to see it with me. And I afterwards I asked what she thought, and she said, I've never been so inspired in my life. And I could just see this emotion at work with her. It almost brought me to tears because to, to see the way that great figures like Martin Luther King can inspire us and that it just takes exposure to these inspiring things, that it gives us a whole different way of living our lives. It's almost like being in love. You know, we, we accept that people are sort of crazy when they're in love and they're motivated by completely different things and they have all this energy and they don't need to sleep and they're but but there's a lot of life that's like that right it's just knowing how to access it and it and a lot of different emotions will give us a similar charge you also talk about dreaming about the future and i think that's really important it kind of you in order to find yourself in a happy place you have to map out where it is (laughs) first place. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's also a way of practicing being optimistic. Mm-hmm. You know, optimism is one of those emotions that's highly correlated with a lot of positive outcomes. It brings a lot of ease into our lives and also power. So it's it's sort of melding the power of visualization and being able to see where you're going, as well as just practicing thinking optimistically. So I mean, one of the research tested techniques is to sit down and write about your best possible future life, right? So what in one year, in five years, in 10 years, what whatever time frame you're interested in, what's your best possible future life look like, right? What is it that you really want? What what What's the best outcome that you could hopeful, hope for? This is something that is a, a very useful exercise. You also talk about the importance of uh, meditation. And you say you started meditating one minute a day. <laughs> I think I might have even started with 30 seconds, to be honest, because 30 seconds is about the realm when um, there's where there's no resistance, basically. So the idea is if you're doing something that's hard, meditating was very hard for me to start doing at first because I was so busy, right? I learned to meditate a long time ago before I wrote this book and um, I was I was so keyed into the notion that productivity and busyness is a sign of success and significance and kind of a mark of character. So just like sitting on a meditation cushion seemed relatively unproductive, staring at my thoughts, basically, <laughs> alone alone with it. And, and that's very hard for people. We can talk a little bit about it. The reason, so, that I just started with one minute or even less than that, it was just going to sit on the cushion, right, is because that is how we build a neural pathway, right, towards a habit. I knew I wanted to be in the habit. I wanted, I didn't want to have to talk myself into meditating every single day. I wanted to just do it like a, like an animal. It takes a path, right? And so that's what you're doing is you're carving a path with your neural pathways. And the first part of that path is sitting on the cushion. And the, the less you resist, the the easier that path is, the more inherently rewarding it's going to be. So your brain makes a little note to self. That's something that I'll, I'd be happy to repeat. I just I did that. It was really easy. So increasing really, really slowly. Now, I only meditate for 15 minutes in the morning. I'm not some super huge meditator. But I do do it with total joy, no resistance, and completely automatically. 
Well, this kind of what you were talking about, carving a pathway, gets back to something that you mentioned early in the book, which is the difference between unconscious thought and conscious thought. Unconsciously, we're processing, what, 50 million bits, and and, and consciously, we're, you know, like reading 11. at 60 words. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's like 11 versus 45 million or something like that. It's shocking, in ter- not just in terms of the sheer amount of data that's going through our unconscious brain, but the processing speed as well. It's it's bits per second. So it's 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 funny. You have picked up on that. I'd forgotten about that. But that is one of the most important things to remember is that our we put so much emphasis on our conscious, focused, deliberate thought. And that is actually just such a small part of all of our brain activity. And it's such a small part of our day, actually. And to think of it as not that it's unimportant, but that it's rare. And so we need to use it really well to not, you know, so that part of our brain that takes deliberate thought and focus and self-control and willpower It enables us to make conscious decisions about what we'll do. It's like a muscle. It fatigues by mid-afternoon for most people, (laughs) right? And so we need to – it's like a precious little resource that we have that makes humans human. It makes us – their tremendous power comes from it. So let's not use it up deciding what to wear in the morning or what to have for breakfast or deciding whether or not to have coffee before or after we shower. All these things, you know, that – that we can just put on autopilot, let our unconscious and much more powerful, much higher processing speed part of our brain take care of it. That's a large part of this book is finding a way to offload uh, conscious decisions into our unconscious. Yeah. I mean, this is there's a whole part of this book, which is really about how to program your unconscious brain. Right. You know what you need to get done. So make it a habit. Right. The things that you don't actually need to think about your morning routine, your evening routine, the whole first part. I mean, even my the way I work when I write Mm -hmm. is all I'm completely set up through my habits so that I don't waste any of that other precious, precious resource, the sort of conscious intelligence on anything else. It's like learning to write code. Yeah, you might as well just program the internal computer to do as much as possible so you can free your mind off to wander exactly the windmills of your mind. Exactly. The fight or flight response, Mm -hmm. this governs so much of our lives. Yeah, it does now, yeah. It'd be good for running away from a lion on savannah. Great on the savannah, not so good in suburbia. No, not so good. Yeah, it's just not a very useful physiological response. It shuts down the parts of our brain that we need to think, for example, and make decisions because you wouldn't want to be slowed down by a pesky decision-making process if you're being chased by that lion, right? It's very functional in certain circumstances, but it's very dysfunctional in our everyday lives. And it was something that I was suffering chronically from. That's why I was always so um, sick because it affects your immune system over Mm -hmm. time. I mean, we're pretty well-versed in how stress hurts our health. But I think people don't also realize that stress changes the way our brains work. It shuts down parts of our brain that that actually are wonderful resources for us, very powerful. We need them. And that when we're sort of walking around in this state of low-level stress or low-level fight or flight, we're not 
operating on, you know, all all cylinders are not necessarily firing and certainly not the cylinders that we need to have firing. And, you know, we don't think about the little what what puts us into sort of low level stress. When I sat and kind of did an inventory about when I could feel myself having a stress response, it was running a couple minutes late. Right. This is kind of preventable. For me, it just was causing me a lot of stress. Most people, it's their devices. The constant checking creates tension. And your, your brain goes into a little bit of a fight-or-flight situation. You suggest that a lot of our technology, as much as it helps us in mm-hmm. some ways, really hurts us in others. It's not the technology that hurts us. It's the way that we use the technology. So mm. the technology is just tools which make my life easier, more powerful. I mean, I could not have written this book or be operating in my sweet spot the way that I am now without all my devices. I've got them all and I love them, right? But I use them really strategically to do what I want to do. So many of us, and I certainly was, just a slave to it, right? It, it kept me keyed into work all the time. So that kept that that stress level pretty high. Or even if it even if nothing stressful at work was happening, I was I was using up energy when I needed to be taking a break. Um for that. So I mean I I had once I once I got an iPhone, I was using that for my alarm. I would turn my alarm off in the morning and then check email and kind of see what had, what came in through the airwaves overnight, right? So I was effectively working before I'd even gotten out of bed in bed. Now I know a lot of people do this. This is not how we do our best work, right? Then we're taking a shower, worrying about the emails we haven't replied to yet. That creates that. And also, we're a little bit behind. So we're pressed for time now. That increases our stress. Our relaxing shower is shot because we saw something stressful that we couldn't actually respond to. So now we have that prolonged period of time in which we're worrying about it until we can get to our desk and actually respond to it. And then if you're anything like me, I get really snappish when I've got too many things going on and I haven't, you know, had a normal morning, you know, so... I'm checking my email. I don't have time to meditate. I'm not very calm. I need to get to work. And then I have four kids, right? And trying to get them breakfast. And all of a sudden, everything they say and do is irritating. And and then I feel guilty that I've then snapped at them. You know, you can see how it can, these things can spiral. Easy solution for me was take my email off my phone or go back to using an old-fashioned alarm clock. We do both in our household. All the kids have old-fashioned alarm clocks, and my husband does too. And now I just don't have email on my phone because I check my email when I can respond to it at my desk. Let's talk about the elephant and the rider, which I think is a really good analogy for us to understand how habits Mm -hmm. help us and and the difference between the conscious and the unconscious mind. Yes. So this is a metaphor that I got from Jonathan Haidt. And he talks about the unconscious mind being like an elephant and the conscious mind being like the rider that's trying to guide the elephant. And sometimes the rider is very skillful in being able to guide the elephant. So the elephant are your habits and your the rider is your conscious thought and willpower and determination. And other times, you know, the the elephant just has a mind of its own, right? It sees something it wants to eat. The rider is completely helpless to stop it. And so when we 
when we program our unconscious mind, basically we're training the elephant to take a path so that the rider doesn't have to guide it. And so when the rider goes offline, when it needs to take a nap, the elephant does it anyway. Sometimes we get stressed or fatigued and that leaves us without any self-control or willpower at all. Isn't it nice when we can just get the things done that we need to get done anyway, right? We exercise anyway, even when we're tired. We meditate anyway, or we eat foods that are good for us, or the things that we can do habitually. We have to train the elephant how to do it. And then once we've trained the elephant how to do it, what we know about our habits is that it's carving a neural pathway that lives in our brain forever. So once it's there, it's, re- it's really there and can always be accessed. There's the actual physical process that goes on there that you call micellinization. Is that Myelination. Myelination, yeah. yes. Yes. So every time you, you do anything, right, you, if you pick something up or any action, any behavior that you have, cell uh, b- neurons will fire together in order to help your body move in the way that you want it to move or think the thoughts that you want it to think. And the more you do something repeatedly, your brain sort of takes note, oh, this is something I'm going to do again. And it starts to myelinate those neural connections, which it's basically like putting insulation around an electric wire. And the more myelination you have, the more insulation you have around that neural pathway or those neural connections in your brain, the faster that connection is going to happen. So this this is something that probably if you've ever learned to play a sport, the first time you do it, you feel all awkward. And, you know, when I was learning to play tennis, I just felt so awkward in in my swing and everything. And I had to think so hard to do something. And as something becomes more and more automatic, essentially that those neural pathways, those nerves that need to fire together in order to get me to be able to hit the ball with the tennis racket, myelinate. And so they they become faster and stronger, and it just happens in a flash. There's, there's no slowness to that anymore. In order to create a habit, what you suggest is that we start small and keep our ambitions uh, tiny. Yes, throw your ambition out the window. That's my best advice for trying to uh, get in a new habit. So if you're anything like me, I would want to design a new habit. And I think about the whole thing at once. And that's good. Start off with what the whole routine or whatever it is you want to do. But I was always so ambitious. And it just takes so much effort to do that, that most people can pull out a spectacular day or week or even month in a new habit. But then they just can't, they just can't muster the willpower anymore. So start so small that it doesn't take any willpower. And then when that really small thing, so going to sit on the meditation cushion, right, taking one bite of salad, just ordering the salad at lunch instead of the fries or whatever it is you're trying to do to get into the habit of that it will, hopefully your habits will help you live more in your sweet spot, right? So then, so then it's automatic to go sit on your meditation cushion so you can add a minute, right? And then it becomes automatic to sit on your meditation cushion and meditate for one minute. And it's so slow. It is so annoying to people like me how slow it can be to build up a habit. But trust me, a year into it, when you're meditating for 10 or 15 minutes and you can really feel the benefits of what you're doing 
and it doesn't take any willpower or any thought. You just wake up and you go right to the whole thing. This is the elephant that says, I'm going to go get my breakfast and takes the path to the breakfast. It knows exactly what it's going to do. It, it's so much better than having meditated for 40 minutes every single morning for the month of January and then not done, done it since. You create what you call willpower muscles. Yes, I do. Well, I like thinking of willpower as a muscle because for two reasons, because it fatigues and we need to be aware of that. It's just a fact. If you make too many decisions and you spend too much time in focus or you're too stressed or whatever, your willpower will be fatigued and you will fall back on whatever habits you already have. It's just the way it's the way things are. Um, or whatever your brain perceives to be most rewarding. So, you know, if you eat or shop or whatever the things we do when we're exhausted. But also because it can be grown. It's not just a muscle in that it fatigues, but it's a muscle in that, that gets stronger when you use it. So you can grow your willpower. It's just not the most efficient thing to do in terms of getting, a you know, leading a more healthful life, for example. It's better to, to build your habits and along the way, you'll also be building your willpower. But the goal is to create lots of ease. And willpower is never easy. You know, uh, you also talk about something you call the licensing effect, yes. which I think is a great term. So to explain that. Once it, what helps in a book like this is the way you will pull out phrases and create these kind of labels that enable us as readers to wrap our brains around and say, oh, yeah, now I get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so moral licensing or the licensing effect, sometimes researchers will actually call this the what the hell effect. Well, actually, no, that's different. I'm sorry. I was confusing that's the different. two things. Yeah, it is. That's, a, that's a really good, that's another good effect that we can talk about. I'm sorry. Okay. So moral licensing or the licensing effect is when we see this all the time in our politicians, actually, when we do something that we perceive to be really good then our brain sort of shuts down and says, I just did something really good. I deserve to be rewarded. And we go and we undermine ourselves. So we pat ourselves too much on the back. And then we we can't muster the willpower that we need to resist temptation, sometimes in the same realm, other times in other realms. So um, it, one, one study, for example, showed that um, people who are trying to quit smoking smoked more if they take in what they perceived to be a vitamin C pill, right? So they're like, I was so healthy, I took vitamin C, and now I can smoke more. No, this does not actually make any sense, but it's not happening on a conscious level. Our unconscious mind lets down its guard when when you go, oh, I'm such a good person, I'm helping the poor, and then the, we have a politician who goes and does something that is totally amoral, right? So the way around this is, first of all, to be aware that our willpower kind of can can drop out of no can go um, can leave us when we are feeling really good about ourselves and to just be really focused on what you've committed to so instead of saying I'm such a good person because I ate kale for lunch say I must be really committed to my health right so then you're keeping your eye on what on the commitment on the change that you're trying to make for yourself nonetheless you uh, suggest that it's a uh, wise idea to expect failure and plan for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I said that, I think I've already said that the most important advice was to not be ambitious, but now actually I think that 
you could include expecting failure in that, right? We know a hundred. You know, there's tons of statistics about people who make resolutions and then fail, and it's you know 88 percent or more, or whatever. I'm sorry, but a hundred percent in my mind are people. You know, a hundred percent of people in my mind or the people that I've worked with fail at some point in a resolution. Right? It's hard to get into habits. It can take a long time. We don't do these things perfectly, even if you are a perfectionist and an overachiever. You still can't do it. And so we are the most successful when we plan for our failure. So when, you know, if we're trying, so the great research is actually in people who've just had hip replacement surgery. So we know that people who've had this surgery recover the most quickly when they get up and walk most quickly, but it's very painful. So what the researchers have people do is say, okay, so your goal is to walk to the mailbox. What happens when you get halfway there and it hurts too much to continue? That's the planning for the failure. The people who think through, okay, when I get to that obstacle, pain, here's what I'll do. I'll take five more steps and then I'll turn around. And just thinking through what you will do when you get to that obstacle, planning for that failure, is can make all the difference in the world. The other piece of it is in hindsight, right? So maybe you didn't see an obstacle. When I was trying to get in the habit of exercising every morning, even my just better than nothing little tiny workout, I it took me a long time to sort of hone it to something that I could actually do. I was too ambitious. So um, in hindsight, every time you don't do what you'd plan to do, turn around and look. What was the obstacle? What was the learning there for me? What am I still resisting? What am I doing? What, what's too hard? What can I do in advance to prevent that obstacle? Those types of planning are how we grow and how we change, are able to really finally change our lives. Let's take it for granted. We've changed our lives. At least we've gotten figured out a little bit about habits. Yeah. But having done so, you just turn around. You just look around at life and you go, oh, my God. I'm completely overwhelmed. And I don't know anybody that I can't think of anybody that I know who wouldn't probably say, yeah, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. So talk about how you unshackle yourself and ease this, what you call the overwhelm, which I think is a really scary but interesting way of putting it. The overwhelm. Yeah. I got that from Bridget Schulte. She wrote a book <laughs> called The Overwhelm. It's like the fog that descends on us. It literally is a brain fog, too. Mm-hmm. We know that when we are overwhelmed or experiencing that cognitive overload, we can't think clearly, we can't plan, we can't organize, we can't control our emotions, or at least we all these things are hindered in us. So it's a problem, and, and we all get to that point in some um, at some point in our lives, and that is the opportunity to stop and to to really unshackle yourself from the things that are causing those over that overwhelm. So a lot of it is about clearing out junk stimulus in your life. So you know, when you think about cognitive overload, it's just too much input during the day. So clearing out things that are stimulating to you that you actually don't need. So putting your cell phone on silent for a good part of the day unless you actually need it. Turning off all alerts from your text messages, from your emails. Doing, your, doing one thing at a time. 
It's so um, unglamorous to just single task. It's like this old-fashioned thing that my grandparents did. They just did one thing at a time. You know, my grandmother wouldn't even cook and talk to me at the same time. She would always put what she was doing down and look right at me, right? But that's the kind of single tasking that helps our brain our brain function its best for sure. And it starts to dial back that overwhelm. So just taking it a little bit at a time, but really knowing you're not fulfilling your potential when you're overwhelmed like that, even though it can feel so important to be so busy and pressed for time all the time. It's not, um, you're not fulfilling your potential. And so looking for ways to use your technology more strategically, to clear out clutter in your lives, looking at the your task list. What's on your task list, for example, that you're doing just because you feel you should do it, right? Somebody else thinks you should do it or that you're doing just for prestige. What can you start saying no to to just clear all of this? You know, we've come back to the more is not necessarily better. So how it's like cleaning out the junk drawer of your life. I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about once we've got ourselves kind of unoverwhelmed. You know, one of the things, too, when you're working just at one thing at a time and you finish that one thing, you get that immediate positive feedback. I've finished that task. Ah, yes. It's gone. It's yeah. gone. So that's kind of what works with two of the parts of what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, it's really important. Humans are social animals. Yes. And so we really have to cultivate our relationships. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. I, I think that um, um, what you said, what I think it was Matt Lieberman, uh, what makes us human is our sociality, our desire for and focus on social connections, loving relationships, and warm interactions with others. That's what—that's the difference between us and the animals, eh? Well, even the animals can be really social. But if you look for a hundred, you know, one hundred and fifty years past of research on what we would call happiness today, but also probably health and longevity in sociology and psychology and neuroscience, what you find is that a person's happiness is best predicted by their social connections, the breadth and depth of their social ties, their connections to other people. So this is an incredibly powerful lever for us. Our social connections bring both ease and power into our lives. And, you know, this is an important thing for us to realize just as as a society we're becoming more and more isolated less and less truly connected and interdependent on one another our families are much smaller we're much more mobile we move more often than past generations and that is very disruptive to those social ties i think that one of the single best entrees into your sweet spot is to to focus on your friendships and your relationships with your family and um, the incredible ease and power that those relationships have for us and on our nervous system. I mean, just at a basic neurological level, we are clannish, tribal kinds of people, and our nervous system is most at ease in the presence of other people. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need time alone and time for stillness. It just means that in our day-to-day lives, we need to feel connected. We need to feel to know on a really deep 
felt level that we have a safety net of people who care for us and that we're connected to. We are not meant to think of ourselves as individuals. Our nervous systems aren't built that way. And here's where technology plays a, a, a spoiler part because connections mm-hmm. are not our friends on Facebook or our email people or even people we talk to on the phone. When you talk to somebody in person, you're getting a huge amount of data that you're absolutely unaware yeah. of in their micro expressions, in the way their face yep. looks. And there's just yeah. there's so much that we get out of in-person contact. And actually, on a neurological level, it's very different. So our positive emotions are very functional. When we you can sit alone at a computer and watch a funny video and laugh, and you will get some benefit from that positive emotion. If you watch that same video or you tell a story with a friend and you're looking into each other's eyes and you know if I start laughing right here right now there's a part because we're this is live and we're looking at each other there's a part of your brain that will behave as though you are laughing right and that is called this is another phrase from Barbara Fredrickson she calls that um the amplification basically of of positive emotions and that that amplification it is much more powerful in our bodies so our nervous systems are totally connected in, in especially in terms of those positive emotions and so when I'm feeling happy there's a part of you that also thinks that it's you that's feeling happy that we are connected in that way and that is really good for us that's why comedy movies at the movie theater are so engaging because when you're there with the audience and laughing, it's so much more fun to do that than to just sit at home, even if the jokes are the same. Right, right, that it, that there is the felt sense of other people enjoying themselves that makes something funnier because it, there, it is actually a different process in your brain. Now, you talk about positive emotion amplifiers. We talk about being in person. But also, I think you talk about, interestingly enough, volunteerism and the importance of compassion Mm -hmm. for others. And I think that that's underserved in our society. Yeah, I think compassion in general, while trendy in some circles, is really a misunderstood emotion. Most people don't realize that it's probably the most powerful positive emotion that we have. People think, oh, well, it's not, they don't even think of it as a positive emotion like happiness or mirth or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. but it is. It's just confusing to us because, you know, compassion is seeing somebody else's suffering and then having the feeling that you can help them. And, you know, that sense of connectedness, right? When you feel compassion for somebody, you're deeply connected to them and you have this great personal power. You you have this desire to help and that takes you out of, you know, your own little individual fight or flight survival instinct into this thing that is much greater. It's the species survival, right? It's much more powerful to be concerned about species survival, right? We, of course, you're consciously not thinking, I'd like, to, I'd like to see humans live another day, so I think I'll help that guy, right? It's not at all, but on a deep evolutionary basis, it, is, it brings so much more power and ease to our lives when we, when we get out of ourselves, when we leave our own little anxieties and our own little worries behind because... There's something bigger than us out there, right? And that, that is 
your community, whatever group of people, or just an individual person. I mean, we can even do it just little tiny things like chatting with somebody on the train next to you. Now, there, I mean, there's research. Nobody thinks you that anybody. You talked about that. I love yeah. the stranger research. Yeah, talking to talk to the strangers. Yeah, chat chat them up. You, we all think that nobody wants to be chatted to, but everybody has this deep human need to be connected, and and they also think, you know, if I if I ask you, what would you think if the person you sit down next to today on that commuter train? was going to start talking to you. Most people, even extroverts, would think, I, w- I would like to find another seat, please. I don't want to talk to a stranger, right? It's, it, it's not so when they do research and have people just have superficial conversations with the person next to them on, on the train, um, they find that, that the person doing the chatting and the receiving on the receiving end ends up more cheerful. I mean, even just making eye contact and smiling at somebody, it's like it's almost an unconscious way of saying, hey, we're all in this together. And even though we're all in this together, nonetheless, we often find ourselves mildly to greatly apart. And so you talk about, I have a section devoted to uh, mending ruptures. And I think this is an interesting way to put the problem in and of itself. So talk about just choosing that terminology. Well, our relationships are can be kind of fragile. They crack all the time. There are fissures in our relationships constantly because a lot of times because we're so busy and we don't take care, but also just because people are annoying, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> we annoy each other. We irritate each other at this, and we do things unintentionally that hurt each other and that we need it's a real skill but we need to have these skills under our belt and that's the ability to repair a relationship now a real truth is that if you have a relationship that fractures and then you take the time to repair it the relationship will be stronger later so these fractures are simply opportunities for strengthening strengthening a relationship not all relationships, obviously, but for the most part, our close friends and family, the people that we really do want to keep near to us and cultivate, we need to learn to repair those relationships rather than just writing people off. I think that's something of a theme throughout this book, that where we fall down in our own perceptions of ourselves with others, we have to essentially man up, admit we done wrong. Uh-huh. And then, but in that process of understanding, we'll have better understanding of ourselves, better understanding of others. And when we repair or, or course correct, as you put it in one of the other sections, we'll come back better and stronger. Absolutely. Well, I would have to write with that perspective, given the the <laughs> origin of this book has come from my own failings. But, you know, we learn things that we couldn't have learned any other way from the difficult moments and that when we embrace that, that difficulty and challenge and often pain can become these much greater things in our lives. They enable us to grow. I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh or or maybe the Buddha. One of the two of those people said, um, no mud, no lotus. Mm. And I often think of that in my everyday, in my daily life when I'm stuck in the mud, I think. There's going to be a lotus. 
you list a variety of what you call connection diseases, diseases, and that's dis dash ease because it's a lack of ease yeah. in, in the relationship. And I I think one of the things that that interested me throughout all of these is that you come back with the cure for many of these the 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 solution is often things that you've talked about before celebrating gratitude shaking things up these are the solutions we already in a sense we already have the solutions to many of the problems we've created for ourselves within ourselves we just have to move that solution to apply it to the problem yes i i i couldn't you put it really nicely i um, agree that a lot of it is just moving from knowing what to do to to doing it. One of the things that I did really like was this idea of tolerating discomfort. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to do that. Y- yes, and and also we have a whole generation of kids who've been parented in such a way that um, you know, as parents. Okay, so I should back up and say the helicopter parents, the helicopter or the snowplow parents, right? Mm. The parents who try and clear all obstacles from their children's way, and you know, really, as a parent, it is instinctual for us to want to prevent pain in our children. It, it and yet, that's what we produce: is somebody who can't deal with difficulty. And like I said earlier, life is hard, you know. <laughs> yes. And it, it's better to be able to tolerate some discomfort in order to build this skill of of being able to deal with difficulty. The more that you can deal with difficulty, the more you can challenge yourself. The more you can challenge yourself, the greater mastery you can develop. And that mastery of any sort of skill brings incredible strength and ease, right? So that's where your sweet spot is for work and home. Absolutely. And that's where you're heading towards in this book. And this is where you make a really interesting distinction between what you call perfectionism Mm -hmm. and mastery. And I think that's one of the things that's at the core of this book is understanding that distinction. So explain to me what the difference is. Yeah, I'm a recovering perfectionist. (laughs) Perfectionism is a particular form of unhappiness where nothing is ever good enough, right? There's always something that you could do better if you're a perfectionist. You always see the flaw in something. Mastery is, is really, it's different. It's, if you want to develop mastery, you're practicing a skill. And it's not about having it be perfect. It's not about the end result. It's not about the achievement. It's about the path to get there and learning to recover from your mistakes, not because you want to be seen as perfect or really good, but because you can learn so much from a mistake that you couldn't have learned any other way. So mastery is a process of challenging yourself to failure and then gaining the strength to overcome that failure so that you can challenge yourself to, at that level again and and do better and then challenge yourself to failure. Perfectionism is a process of fearing failure, doing everything you can within your power not to disappoint people, not to fail, not to make a mistake. And this... Uh involves another key concept in this book is the idea of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And we need to let ourselves be vulnerable. We need That's important to us as a species and to, as individuals. 
Yeah, it is. You know, people think of vulnerability as weakness, and that's actually not true. So vulnerability, and I've learned so much about vulnerability from Brene Brown, everything I know I've learned from her. Um, vulnerability is exposure, basically, emotional exposure. It's taking a risk that, you know, it's pushing yourself into that level of discomfort because of the possibility of growth there and interpersonally because of the possibility of intimacy, right? If you don't let yourself feel what you're going to feel, if you don't show what it is you're feeling, other people can't actually really know you. And so if we want to establish those connections with other people, if we want to gain mastery, we will be vulnerable. But even if we're vulnerable, we, we still need to feel what you feel. Mm-hmm. And I think this is important. This has to do with observing your emotions. Yes. This goes cause comes back to that not numbing your emotions. When mm-hmm. you numb your emotions, you might want to numb the dis- uncomfortable ones. But in effect, what you do is you numb them all, right? So the, f- the first step, and this requires tolering, tolerating some discomfort, is to just lean in to however it is you're actually feeling. So I learned to do this with myself by teaching my children, and now I teach executives how to do this. But it sounds sort of childish, but it works very well. Is thinking about, you know, if you notice that you're feeling anxious, for example, Try and objectify the emotion a little bit. You want to lean into it. Well, what does that really mean, lean into an emotion? It means think about where in your body are you feeling it. Can you give it a shape or a texture or a color? You know, this is something kids are pretty good at doing and adults think you're crazy. But when you're really trying to figure out what it is you're feeling, you're developing your own emotional intelligence. And so you have to look deeply sometimes and very closely. What is it that you're feeling? I remember hearing Eckhart Tolle talk one time, and and he said something that made me think that emotions, what you have to realize that you are not your emotions. You are the operating system on which your emotions run like a little program. So you'll just have this little, okay, it's a sadness program. And you point out that they're very transient. Yeah, well, when, when you acknowledge them. They're very transient. If you numb them out, they don't necessarily go away. They they rarely go away, but they seem to dissipate just as you're just as you're really figuring them out, they go away. In the very end when we want to get our groove back, it's really just important, I think, to come back to fun. <laughs> yes. I, I'll give that to you. It's the opposite of busyness, right? So we lose our groove when we get too busy and too overwhelmed, and we find our groove when we have fun. That you know, and if, even if you just think about the way that we use the term busyness, right? If I have a really fun day, if I go to work and I get to really focus on one project, and it's I get a I get a lot done because I'm focused and I'm in the flow, and that's fun, right? And then I'm able to hang out with my kids and throw the ball for the dog, and read a book. Our whole day has been filled, and yet we don't say we're busy, right? We, we say we had a fun day. That's the sweet spot to me. I've been speaking with Christine Carter. Her new book is The Sweet Spot. Thank you for joining me, Christine. Oh, thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.